Welcome to the Natural Selection, where this week's theme is brains. Hello, welcome back audience. We are definitely a class, maybe a family, and in no particular order. We have Naomi. Hello. And Nick. Hello. And I'm Nick. Hello. Um, we are the Natural Selection. We're here to talk to you about the natural world. But how have your guys' weeks been? You've been all right? It's been raining all week, so otherwise okay. I mean, okay. I actually am sprained my ankle as a weekend. But other than that, I'm fine. Were you um, partying too hard? Uh, no, I was attempted to go for a jog and um, caught my foot on something. But was it okay. the, how far through the jog? Were you like leaving the house, or was it like? <laughs> no, I was at the end. <laughs> oh, okay, that's right. That's yeah. Really... Well, it wasn't except, like... <laughs> except I was a half an hour walk away from my house. Oh um, no! Without a limp. <laughs> but no, um, it, was, it was all good. Other than that, apart from being stricken and injured. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, fair enough. I've been enjoying the sunshine. I, I went for a nature walk. Oh, see anything good? good? Mainly butterflies were sort of the most notable thing, but I was just walking through um, a little, very curated forest at the top of a hill. Mm. It was quite nice. Yesterday I went out for a walk, and at first, when I saw the rat by the river, I thought, that's a rat by the river. And then we walked together for about five minutes, and it was like a very cute little companion. It, <laughs> like, it stopped being a sort of like gross rat and became like a little like, oh. He's still going. I'm still going. He's not running away. <laughs> it was fun. Well, that's nice. That's kind of like, you know, when you say goodbye at a party and then you both leave and you're like, oh, this is now we're just walking together. Exactly. That's yeah. what, exactly what it was like, except the it was like when that happens in a movie and then they end up together. Aww. <laughs> so are you still friends? I think so. Hopefully I'll see him again soon. That'd be nice. <laughs> um, cool. Well, I guess um, we should, after this short break, get on with the news. Welcome back, listeners. So we've been searching, well, mainly the web because we can't leave the house, uh, for exciting nature news. Uh, did you guys find some cool stories this week? Cool is... Uh... Well, you'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I found something really cool. I found some amazing stuff on birds. Oh, cool. Let's hear it. So the biggest bird of all, uh, I think. No, that's a lie. Sorry. I've, I've opened with a lie. Uh, I think it's it's big, big Bird, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the biggest flying bird, um, or at least has the largest wingspan, which is condors. So there were some researchers, which is Williams et al. from Swansea University, and they were looking at how such an enormous bird could actually fly, because surely that flapping their wings would be such an expensive thing to be doing and use up so much of their energy. So how are they doing it? And what they found is that condors only flap for 1% of their flight time, which means 99%, yeah, 99% of the time they're not flapping. And more to the point, that 1% of flaps... 75% of all flapping behavior was related to taking off. Oh my gosh. So once they're up in the air, they're just 
they're just there. They're just there being condors. Um, yeah. And this was with immature birds as well. So it was assumed that perhaps like really good um, energy conserving techniques would have to be learned over time. But these were immature birds. So it appears it's just something they, they can do. And what they were saying is that they can basically cover vast distances without flapping their wings. And their argument would be is this might explain how extinct birds and things like flying reptiles with wingspans twice the size of condors could have flown because they're not actually sort of using that enormous um, effort to flap. So they found they were flapping for only 1% of their flight time, which is among the very lowest movement costs in all of vertebrates. One bird even flew for over five hours without flapping. What? Wow. It flew 172 kilometers. That's just, it's so lazy. It's miraculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it does feel like the sort of animal equivalent of um, laying on an inflatable and floating down the river. Yeah. Yes. I wonder how much energy it costs to hold the wings out. That's a good question. That's a yeah, very good question. I don't think it addressed it in there. One thing it did say, and this was perhaps my favourite fact, is that condors, they predict, for every kilometre they travel, they flap for two seconds. Well. Wow. So yeah, and uh, I suppose it does give that image. I mean, when you think of large birds, you rarely think of them flapping. It is that sort of very still, very high up sort of pose with those wide wingspans. Um, but yeah, they just ride thermals as well they can. And, and yeah, that's how they, they get around. We don't have condors in in Arizona where I grew up, but obviously the California condor is like a, one of the charismatic megafauna of the U.S. But we do have turkey vultures, and they're similar. They're like carrion birds. They go away for basically like fall and winter, and they migrate in the spring, and they arrive in like mid-March. And when you see the first turkey vulture up in the sky, it's like, spring is here. Um, oh, that's but, nice. Yeah, it's a really cool, like, herald of spring in the desert. Yeah, I suppose because vultures are usually seen as a sign of death, or especially in movies, like that movie trope. But yeah, in Arizona, I suppose they're a sign of new life and spring and mm-hmm. growth. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, what did you guys find? Well, moving on from a sign of sp- spring and new growth, um, I have something completely opposite. Uh, new signs of death. Um, this is a, a article that came out um, today in nature um, by a Norwegian team who has been looking at killer whales and they're studying essentially the patterns of pollutant concentration in high they're studying the patterns of pollutant concentration in top level predators so the killer whales are some of the top level predators of the ocean and in the past the assumption when studying these killer whales was that most of them are eating a primarily fish diet but this group in Norway is, has found observed killer whales that eat seals, almost primarily seals, um, in addition to fish, but they have a high seal content in their diet. And they were wondering if the concentration of pollutants in their bodies is different in the ones that eat seals versus the ones that eat fish. And it turns out that uh, the ones that eat fish have below thre- sort of danger thresholds of pollutants in their body, and the ones that ha- eat seals. And I will list for you now some of the things that they were looking at, including mercury, which is the one that we know best, I think, from how it enters the fish in our supermarkets. They're looking at mercury levels, and they're also looking at what they call the emerging brominated flame retardants, like 
pentabromoethylbenzene, pentabromoethylene, and hexabromobenzene. And they have four times higher concentrations in the ones that eat seals versus the ones that eat just fish in the killer whales. So apparently eating seals is really bad for these killer whales diet. And the entire population of killer whales that eat seals is above the danger thresholds for pollutant concentration in their flesh. God, that's not good news. Wow. It's it doesn't has there been studies done on like the effects that these pollutants have on, on the killer whales? I suppose it's probably hard at the time scale. Does it make seals less flammable? Well, one would think um, that there would be studies, Naomi, about um, these, yeah, what the effects are. But I think that this is such a new, I mean, they just came out today that they've realized that killer whales are having this type of high concentration. So maybe that study is coming out next year. Nick, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely flame retardant. Cool. Well, that's some good news for the seals, at least. Yeah. Yeah, they must that's have the... pretty high concentrations too, if 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 the killer whale or orcas do. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's it's in that general trend of like trophic concentration, the mm-hmm. idea that pollutants and other things sort of like because a killer whale has to eat many seals over its life, it accumulates the pollutants from all of the seals that it eats mm-hmm. and it sort of concentrates them and the seals accumulate it from all the fish that they eat and etc. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense that because they've added in a trophic layer, the seal layer in between the fish and the whale, that they would concentrate that pollutant. Yeah. Apparently the mercury level is only twice as high in the ones that eat seals. So not as terrible as the flame retardants. No, it's not great news that that, that that anything has flame retardant in it, let alone that it's above danger levels in a species that we sort of see and can try to care for. I don't know. Yeah, I remember seeing a documentary where there's great concerns in New Zealand. They would often find killer whales who had died, and the assumption was that, yeah, there's an accumulation of poisons or man-made chemicals which had led to their demise. They struggle doing the research because in native beliefs, the Maori people, that the killer whales are actually um, contain the souls of their ancestors or are related to that. So they don't want anyone doing scientific experiments. And of course, when we go over there and the practices we lead killing them, uh, it's probably not best to stir the, stir the pot anymore. So they, they struggle to do research over there. So it is interesting to find that, yeah, in Norway, they're finding a similar thing. Hopefully the last bit of news that we have is going to be a little bit better than that. Slightly happier, I would say, kind of more on the neutral side of things. So my piece of news <laughs> is all about the complex beluga whale societies. And um, so initially they thought that beluga whales had a very matrilineal structure, which because other whales like killer and sperm whales have this sort of society. So basically there would be large groups of female whales and they would kind of stick together. But beluga whales are kind of one of the harder whales to study and they haven't really been able to do these sort of studies before. So this research was published in Nature Scientific Reports, and it was it found that they were actually very complex groups that were found. So there was lots of different groups, and they were very com- uh, context-dependent. They also found that there was a lot more males than they thought there would be. Uh, so there were some groups that were like uh, unrelated males together. Um, so this suggests that what's keeping them together isn't just kin selection, which like it would be in other whale groups, but it's a mix of maybe altruism, or different things like that, depending on 
whether it, these are beneficial interactions. And there's also varying time scales that these groups stay together. So some stay for longer, um, some are quite short-term interactions. But they, their suggestions that their societies are almost as complex as some human societies. Um, so it's really interesting compared to what our previous thoughts were. Whoa, that's that last little tidbit that you dropped there is pretty crazy. Yeah, well, that's that's what one of the the things I was reading about the paper said. But yeah, that because it's it's so many different interactions, um, so many different kinds of ways that they interact. And they also have like complex language and, and stuff in, in their communication. Sounds pretty cool. So, so relatively good news. We're learning some more about some complex interactions in other, other groups and other species. Yeah, it made me smile. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they did this using uh, mitochondrial DNA to, to find out the relatedness in the groups. And they found it across several different groups in different locations as well. Oh, cool. Well, that's nice news to end on. Yeah. Um, well, we'll be back after this break with our topic of the week, which is brains. Brains. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that brief break. Uh, as promised, we're back with our theme of the week, which is brains. I hope you guys remembered. Brains. <laughs> oh, no, I forgot my brain was working. Ah. <laughs> we are hilarious. <laughs> Comedy podcast. Um, so yeah, brains is an interesting topic. Yeah, definitely. There's some there's some cool things. And um, the first thing I thought about was like the evolution of brains, like when when they appeared. What what's the first one? And um, that they found. Um, so do you guys know how old the earliest brain fossil is? The earliest brain fossil? Yeah. I'm going to go for 500 million years. Pretty close, yeah. 520 million years. Ooh. Um, so the fossil is called Alalcomenius. Um, and basically, they've discovered that it's an arthropod-like organism. Um, so it seems to be related to modern spiders, horseshoe crabs, and scorpions, that kind of group of arthropods. But it's actually quite the the full complex system that they found. Um, it's quite a well preserved fossil. They also suggest that they found another fossil of the other group of arthropods, so the ones that are closer to insects and crustaceans. That's um, quite distinctly different. So this means that the earliest brain was a lot before this. If there's two separate branches in the arthropods already at this point, so that's interesting. I found some other stuff about the the origins of possible brains. So coanoflagellates are single cell organisms, but they're able to communicate with each other through chemical signaling. These have been around for about 850 million years. Um, so the precursors for signaling within the brain and those base structures have been around for a super long time. So the earliest kind of... So some of the animals that are still around that have very basic brains as we would consider them are jellyfish, so they've got sort of like a neural net, which is like a structure of neurons that go across the body. The central nervous system, the origins of that are a little bit trickier. It's likely that scientists believe that it was found in a urbilitarian, which is kind of a hypothetical common ancestor for animals, which is like a worm-like creature. 
there's an alternative theory that could have evolved several times, the brain, but there are a lot of shared characteristics between certain brains. Um, so I think the favorite idea is that it was one common ancestor. But around 500 million years ago, there was a duplication of the genome, and this allowed for a lot more complexity to evolve. Oh, cool. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so fish have a lot of the same parts of the brain that we have. Um, so, for example, the amygdala, a lot of times I think people refer to it as like your, your lizard brain or your reptile brain. Um, it triggers kind of the, the fight or flight. Um, so if you're having like an emotional response to something, it's your amygdala going off. Um, Are you saying um, we should be calling that our fish brain? I think so, yeah. <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> the basal ganglia as well, that's another conserved structure. And then about 360 million years ago, um, our ancestors colonized the land, and then eventually we got mammals, um, skipping a lot of million years here, um, about 200 <laughs> million years ago. And so mammals have very specialized brains. They have a, a neocortex, which is a, another extra layer on the top of their brain, so allows for even more complexity. The early mammals also had developed olfactory bulbs, which is something I mentioned I think in our nighttime episode, talking about nocturnal animals and how they relied on, on scent. It's probably worth noting as well that throughout all this history of brains, there's still animals to this day which have no brains. Like things have evolved and survived where they haven't bothered with this complexity of brains. Like people assume that this is a linear thing, that, that brains have to get more complex as you, as, you, as you evolve and get. But no, there's loads of animals that live in the sea quite happily not using any brain at all. Yeah, exactly. And your example of the tunicate, I think, from a couple of episodes ago, where you talked about they have a brain and then they actually lose it when they become stationary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The next kind of step, like you said, it isn't really a linear progression, but I suppose for me, I find it easier to, to unpack if we go from, say, the most simple kind of brains that are around to, to the most complex in quotations which should be human and primate brains um so with primates there's links between social groups and size of brain so the more complex the the social group is the larger the brain i'd find it interesting if there's a link between complex social group and brain size because then you think like the real housewives of atlanta would be geniuses <laughs> <laughs> would evolve over time to become geniuses yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> To keep I an eye on them, guys. <laughs> I mean, we're now we're reaching an era where our community includes like most of the world, um, where like we can be immediately connected to anyone in the world. And will that change? I mean, there's not really selective pressure on humans anymore, but I wonder if that will change our brains. I know a thing about this. So Let's hear it. The historical sort of Stone Age society of humans would be a maximum about 50 people. So if you find like um, sort of different tribal groups, they generally be about 50 people. And what they found by analyzing things uh, by like what they found by analyzing things like Facebook, where they can actually track your social interactions, even if you have 200, 300, like uh, thousands of friends. In reality, you can only actually keep social uh, in that way with maximum 50 people. And after that, it starts to break down. So even after all these years and all these sort of like social interactions, um, it appears that we still conserve uh, the same amount of people in our social life as we did in sort of historic societies, even though we created cities of, you know, millions and millions of people. Huh, that's really interesting. That's interesting. Um, but yeah, I was looking at something relating to that on the idea of complexity of brains. 
because it's quite difficult to pin down because you often hear things like um, our brain size as, as being important, um, which it is. Like, obviously, a bigger brain might be quite useful. But do you know the animal with the largest brain? I do, but I looked this up earlier. Blue whale. That would make sense. It is a whale, but it's actually the sperm whale. Oh. Which, if you think about it, it does make sense because it's the largest predator. And predators often have larger brains because they have to have more complex behaviors to get their food. Hmm. Uh, so it's a, it's a sperm whale. Uh, and there are ones, obviously, they're very, very small brains when you get into insects. Uh, so, But maybe large brains aren't so useful because you'd think, well, let's be honest, like, I'd fancy myself to outsmart a sperm whale. Especially on some things, like, I don't know, um, I'm quite good at chess. Um, imagine they're not. They so, don't even have fingers. Yeah. None of them have ever won a Nobel Prize. That's only been humans. So they can, they can bring their chat, but we've got the, we've got the statistics to back it up. Um, a lot of people say it's brain size in a ratio to body size. So we can look at that. And if you look at us compared to sperm whales, then yes, our brains are larger when you compare it to body size. However, that falls down because you know the mammal with the largest brain compared to their body size? No. Not sure. It's a tree shrew. Of course, of course. Yeah, I'm sure that was on the tip of your tongue. But a tree shrew, and again, zero Nobel Prizes to them. You feel like that maybe that's not the most useful thing. So the complexity of brains is often put simplified as like largeness or, or to body size. But you can actually have a large uh, a brain which is not so big but might have a lot of connections or might make those connections a lot quicker. It's like when we're talking about the most powerful computer, you don't Google what's the biggest computer in the world. You Google what's the most powerful computer. Um, and you don't say what's the biggest computer in a small room. Again, you you look at the most power and like the speed of it. And and yeah, that applies uh, to our brains as well. Hmm. Yeah, this is, I suppose that's something that I feel like you're kind of touching on there is that it's hard to measure in terms of brains like what actual computing power is as well, though. So it's tricky to kind of to to work those things out. Hmm. And of course, whatever I I'm willing to bet that whatever system we come up with is going to be biased towards us anyway. When really, I mean, our brains and the brains that we see as like complex and powerful are brains that are designed for visual manipulators of the surroundings. I guess that there are so many different ways of like interacting with the world around you directly like interfacing with the world and that we have one way and what the way that we've dealt with it is by developing this brain that can see things well um and pattern match but like i don't know other ways another another thing that they they talk about separating kind of humans and in terms of intelligence and brains is the ability with language um, so I think something that helps a lot, particularly in society, is language. And, and I think that's something that's really kind of triggered or like a runway selection almost with humans um, and this sort of intelligence. Yeah, that's like a, a key thing, isn't it? It's like what separates us from the animals. And obviously, every example we give is always eventually found not quite to be as unique as we think. Mm. Um but yeah, language is one that we do know that we definitely have the most complex language of any animals. Mm. And studying evolution, we thought, well, there was someone who basically said, why don't we just teach gorillas language? Because we can do that. They don't have to be able to speak because we have a language which involves not speaking, which is sign language. And there's various different sign languages all over the world. One thing that really fascinated me 
is that British Sign Language and American Sign Language are not mutually intelligible. So for the deaf community, uh, British and American are an entirely different language. They taught this to gorillas uh, with the idea being that, well, they can move their hands, but there was no uptake of the language. Like their language use was very, very basic. Like forming sentences wasn't very easy. We would have to sort of interpret what they meant in very diff difficult ways because they would sort of give sentences which contained words that we all understood and they obviously knew what they meant, but the pairing of the words meant nothing to us, that that meaning couldn't be conveyed. Mm -hmm. So one example is they think someone was trying to explain how their parents were murdered by poachers. But the sentence is very ambiguous, so they're sort of alluding to that. Mm. Mm. Another interesting thing is they've never bothered to ask us a question. I mean, why would have you? We, have we asked? <laughs> I mean, do we? In what like do we ask gorillas questions in yeah. a philosophical sense? Not like were your parents killed by poachers? Yeah, <laughs> we do <laughs> ask. We're very much of the question asking variety. We ask them things as like uh, about what they want, about what. Uh, we might challenge them with, with quizzes, but uh, a gorilla has never understood us as a receptacle of information. Mm. It can't understand that we might know something that it doesn't. Maybe we I... don't. But yeah, do you know of any animals that have asked humans questions? Um, my... Parrots? Oh, yes. Sorry. Oh. Parrots. I think a, a grey parrot? Yeah, African, African grey. Was its name Alex? He has asked questions. He is the only animal to have ever asked an existential question to humans. Oh. What was the question? What colour am I? Which is really stupid because he's an African grey. I know, you should know. Yeah, it's right in the name, mate. It's like, um, where, where are my ancestors from? It's like, Jesus, Alex. Like, <laughs> pay attention. But maybe he wants to know what the English translation is. Maybe he knows what it is in, in Paris. That's true, he yeah. doesn't know what the English word is. Yeah, fair enough. Alex is one of my favorite, um, like, animal research study subjects um, because of, I mean, it's very sad, but the way that Alex went out, um, gray parrots are supposed to, they live an incredibly long time, um, but at something like in his early 30s, Alex was, you know, being a research subject. And his carer at the time, um, every evening when they'd leave the lab, they would say, bye, Alex. And Alex would say, good night. Be good. I love you. See you tomorrow. Um, and then that was it. So that's what Alex's last words were. Be good. I love you. See you tomorrow. Sad. It's sweet. Sad and he, sweet. Because he didn't see it tomorrow. No. Oh, so sad. I think actually that's the same um, the same tr animal behaviorist that the parrot I spoke about a couple of weeks ago, Griffin, works with. Huh. I also know with Alex that she got the pet store owner to pick the parrot, so she couldn't have picked the most intelligent one. So it was literally just a random, random parrot. Hmm. Yeah. A sad end to a great parrot. Yeah. Mm. Great parrot. But they also mm. throw a spanner in the works because they don't have very big brains. They assumed mammalian intelligence was greater than everything else. And then when they looked at other things, they suddenly realized, actually, we should probably be paying attention. Because even though they're vastly different on the evolutionary tree, that they, they do have intelligence. Mm. 
Mm. There's an even further part one which we now study. One of my favourite animals. There's a billion years of evolution between us, but we study them for their intelligence. I'm assuming you guys can guess what it is. A slug. Well, it's a mollusk. Next. (laughs) (laughs) Octopus. We do study them. They are intelligent, and our most recent common ancestor would probably be pre-Cambrian. Whoa. So their idea that they're intelligent is really mind-boggling. But what's odd for them is that they're sort of a large, complex invertebrate that's also a predator. And as I said, like predators often have to have more complex brains. But they do the other really weird thing about them of having evolved intelligence. Do you know the other sort of paradox that people have with keplopods and why they bother to be intelligent? They don't have brains. If they don't live very long. Stupid. (laughs) (laughs) So for intelligence to be useful over instinct, the consensus was that you have to live a long time for that intelligence to actually take effect. Because if you only live like a year or so, why bother learning? Because it would take you a lot of time to learn behaviours for them to become advantageous. Whereas if you just go by instinct, um, you can get bang on with life and and do your business and reproduce. Whereas most cephalopods maximum live about three years. The notable exception being Nautilus. And Nautilus are widely regarded as the least intelligent of all the cephalopods. Interesting. So it's very odd. But they did find something pretty cool. What did they find, Nick? So what they notice is octopus eggs are see-through. And it appears when their little baby octopuses are in the egg, they're actually observing things in the outside world. So some people hypothesise that they might be learning before they're born. Oh my god. That's cool, right? That's super cool. Can you imagine if you spent the first, like, quarter of your life sitting inside of a bubble, watching the world pass by around you? I mean, that's any child born now. (laughs) 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 But no, uh, octopus brain's really interesting. They evolved entirely separately to ours. Like, they are more closely related to snails than us. Um, and they have brains which enable them to become very intelligent. They're intelligent beings. They also have quite complex nervous systems outside of their brain as as well, right? They have like, am I right in thinking that they have ones kind of almost for each arm, like a? They have satellite clusters of neuronal cells in their arms. Yeah. Yes. So it's not like an individual brain like we have. It's that they can independently work them. Cool. Like simultaneous core processors. There's some there's some really interesting experiments that have been done looking at animal cognition and like intelligence in animals. And um, there's a really cool one if if you guys uh, want, I can tell you about. Um, so this was looking at desert ants and how they find their way back to their nests. So what these ants do is they leave their nest kind of looking for food. So they go in sort of a random meandering direction until they find food. And then they can make their way directly back to their their nest, kind of as the crow flies, and they're able to find their way back. And um, so scientists wanted to figure out like how they're doing this, like what's what's happening. Um, so they they did a couple of clever experiments to try and figure this out. So I thought this was kind of fit in well with this topic because not only is it looking at intelligence in an animal, 
um, in this case, an invertebrate, but it's also looking at the intelligence of a scientist trying to work out how to study intelligence in animals. <laughs> so there's layers. Um, so basically, they've, they've realized that they do something called dead reckoning. So what they did was they drew a grid around the ant's nest. They let the ant leave the nest and they picked it up and put it somewhere else. And they found that the ant couldn't find its way back. Could so, not find its way back? No, it couldn't. Oh, shoot. So when we like bl- blow an ant off a table, <laughs> it's over for the ant? Yeah, well, so I'm not sure if all species of ants do this dead reckoning. Um, but for, for this species, yeah, it'd be a bit, tri- it'd be a bit trickier. Like it can eventually sort of get back on course, I think, because it kind of goes back and forth till it, till it finds, um, yeah, but so, so they, they had a couple of different hypotheses of how it's, it's working. So one, they were wondering if they find their direction based on the sun. So what they did is they put a box over it and waited a couple of hours and then took the box off and it was still able to find its way home. So they realize they have an internal clock to be able to work out the uh, position relative to the sun and like how it moves so they can find their way based with the sun. And then they had three hypotheses on how they actually find their way back. So the first is the energy hypothesis. So they're basically able to track how much they expend to leave and then they can work out how much to, to get back. Uh, so what they did to test this, there's some really like cute things they did on this experiment well it's also scientific and smart but um cute and so they put tiny little backpacks on the ants and uh, oh so they changed yeah <laughs> i'm sure that they weren't actually backpacks but you know for for all intents and purposes they were so basically this works to change the load on the ant's body so basically it's carrying a different weight around but the, the ants were able to get home okay so they figured out that this isn't how they do it the second thing they tried was the optic flow hypothesis. So basically, they thought that maybe the ants figure out how to get back based on how much visual stuff they saw on the way there. So if they see a certain amount of visual stuff, and then on the way back, they'll see the same certain amount of visual stuff. What they did for this was they let the ants go out, and then they blindfolded the ants, and then sent them back. They could still get back. Uh, so the, the third thing they, they thought was basically they count their steps. And so in order to test this, they put little stilts on the ants. Uh, so some of the ants got stilts, um, some got amputated. So they had little oh stumpy gosh. legs. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amputated. <laughs> no. And <laughs> so some, they like put the stilts on them after they had gone, found the food, and were coming back. Some, they put put them on as they were leaving the nest. So basically, the ants that had this manipulation happen before they left the nest were able to find their way back okay. But the ants with stilts overshot their distance, and the ants with stumpy legs undershot their distance. And so basically, they found out through this experiment that they do count their steps. So it's interesting. It, it ended up being quite a simple experiment, but it helped figure out how these ants navigate, which is an important use of intelligence and brains for most species. Maybe simple in design, but how do you glue stilts onto... Each ant has six legs, and they're tiny. Yeah, they used pig bristles. Oh my god. That doesn't really clear anything up for me. That just, that just <laughs> raises more questions. 
<laughs> I'm actually sure what size desert ants are. They might be like... They've got legs about the width of pig bristles. <laughs> yes, yeah. Even so. I, I, I they're imagine about, it was... Um, they're much four. smaller than an ocelot. <laughs> smaller than a bed box. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they probably got a research assistant or a PhD student to do it. Um, by the way, if we ever get a... Um, a hip-hop collective of us three. Can we call it the optical flow hypothesis? Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. That's really cool. I like ants. I love ants. Mm. Ants are great. Ants are brilliant. Love an ant. Love hymenoptera in general. Uh, one of my favourite brainy facts about ants is, I'm sure I've mentioned this previously on the podcast, is when, with ants, they sometimes gather together. And I can't remember which species this was, but it was a species of ant. When they're making a decision, like where their new nest will be, they all stand next to each other and start chemically signalling to each other. After a short while, they then stop chemically signalling and all head off in the same direction. Oh my god. So yeah, they'd send scouts out to find a certain uh, applicable nest. They come back, and then they pick one of the nests from these ants by a group decision. But what's interesting is the number of connections they're making through those chemical signals um, with the ants next to them is similar to the number of connections in a brain. Wow. So they sort of become a temporary brain, a hive mind. That's pretty um, cool. Your literary correspondent is back. It's from a, a sort of like science philosophy essay by the Dr. Lewis Thomas. This is, yeah, sort of more philosophical than we're used to here on this podcast. Nick, you're talking about ants thinking. This is the end of, of Lewis Thomas's essay, The Tucson Zoo, actually. And he says, one thing I'd like to know most of all, when those ants have made the hill and are all there touching and exchanging and the whole mass begins to behave like a single huge creature and thinks, what on earth is that thought? And while you're at it, I'd like to know a second thing. When it happens, does any single ant know about it? Does his hair stand on end? When a bunch of different things come together and think like that, what thinks? And is there something to observe the thinking, like in our brains? Do you think they suffer from Mm anti-intellectualism? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, Are you guys familiar with Ramoni Cajal? No. No. He's one of my favourite people to read about. He's a Span- He's won a Nobel Prize for his work with uh, Camillo Golgi. Have you heard of Camillo Golgi? No. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard the name Golgi before? The Golgi apparatus? Yes. yes. Yes, it's named after Camillo Golgi. But they actually won a Nobel Prize for something else. So another thing he's famous for is another thing with the word Golgi and that you might have heard of if you're particularly nerdy. You guys tend to work with fossils, so you're less likely to have come across this. But if you work with cells, you might. Have you heard of the Golgi stain? Mm-mm. No. It's a way to stain organelles. But what's really interesting about it is Ramon Cajal did this amazing work with him where they found that you could stain neurons. Now, the problem with previously staining neurons is if you're trying to stain a brain, it's not very useful because it's like a bowl of spaghetti. So if all of the spaghetti is like dyed black, it doesn't actually help you find individual strands of spaghetti it just changes the color of the mass Mm. what's really interesting is this stain randomly stains neurons so it's not all of them so all of a sudden some of them stick out and ramoni cajal did these amazing drawings where he would sit on these microscopes and painstakingly draw these neural connections that he'd stained at random and he's an amazing character because he never ever wanted to be a doctor he wanted to be an artist 
But his father was professor of medicine in the university of his town, which I think was Bilbao. I know it's in Basque country, but I can't remember exactly where. But his father was professor and he was like, Haha, artist, no, doctor. You're going to be a doctor. And Ramonica Hal hated this and would constantly get in trouble at school and was really, really rebellious. So what his father did was like, okay, you can draw, but you're going to have to come with me. And what you can draw is the dead bodies in the morgue. So you can draw scientific drawings. And this is his way to draw in. And he actually ended up studying medicine. And he won the Nobel Prize in medicine for these drawings um, of neurons, which essentially invented neuroscience. So what I love about Ramonica Hal is that he might be the only person who won a Nobel Prize in a field he didn't want to study. Wow. I love that. Also, I'm looking at these drawings now. Holy crap. They're beautiful, right? Yeah. I do find it interesting that even though he's done it in medicine, it's essentially his artistic technique and brilliance which led him to get that Nobel Prize. And they, they do make really beautiful pictures. And it was essentially the beginning of neuroscience, that idea of being able to study the brain as a physical mass compared to, yeah, the idea of philosophy, which is sort of studying the thought process. Whoa, this is, these are pretty amazing. This almost makes me think of an Emily Dickinson poem. Go on. <laughs> Emily Dickinson is not known for her. Well, she's a, she's a, she's a varied woman. She's multidimensional. But we talked today about condors soaring we talked about things in the deep ocean um we didn't talk about god uh but this poem talks about all of those things so here's the brain is wider than the sky the brain is wider than the sky for put them side by side the one the other will contain with ease and you beside the brain is deeper than the sea for hold them blue to blue the one will absorb the other as sponges buckets do The brain is just the weight of God, for heft them pound for pound, and they will differ, if they do, as syllable from sound. I like that opening, the idea that, like, the brain is bigger than all the things that it can conceive, because it can think of them all and then hold them within our own brains. Physically, they're obviously not bigger, but... It reminds me of a couple of quotes. One is, if the brain was simple enough for us to understand we wouldn't be able to understand it right amazing but the other one that sort of reminds me of is i'd had it from alan watts but uh, i don't know where he got it from but it's we are the universe experiencing itself mm. <laughs> I'm not sure if my brain can handle it. (laughs) 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 But yeah, that idea that all the brain is is processing the universe for us. But is also part of the universe. Yeah, it's cool, eh? Yeah. Cool topic, cool theme. So I think we've skirted around this issue is the idea of measuring intelligence is quite difficult and it's very controversial even in humans because the way we measure intelligence can be learned which sort of is not really what you want from an intelligence test, it should sort of be innate. A big problem we have is, in fact, the limitations with the scientific method, which is something we sort of have to stick to as scientists. But the whole premise of the scientific method is that something is not true until proven otherwise, which for things like intelligence can be really, really difficult to to get your head around because you have to go from the presumption that something is not intelligent until you can prove it is. You can't presume that something is intelligent until you prove otherwise. 
which innately we would want to assume, for example, that chimpanzees, because they're closely related to us, that they must be have a related intelligence to us. But unless you can prove that scientifically, then you get into trouble. And part of the problem with measuring intelligence is how do you measure intelligence? One, without language. And two, from a cultural perspective, is what we are measuring generally is how good animals are at being humans and doing human tasks. It's very difficult to measure how best to be a parrot. So how do you create an intelligence test for a parrot? I don't have any good answers for you, Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have anything to further discussion around that? You're right. I think you kind of said it there that it's all through our perception as well. That like it's what we consider intelligence is is exactly as things that make humans function well in a human centric world. But what allows something else to survive and evolve and and live for a hundred million years is something different. I think I get your your meaning because it's the idea that with a chimpanzee we're slightly closely related and we have. Not exactly the same niche that we've carved out. Obviously, we live in different niches, but the struggles in life of a chimpanzee we could understand. But something like an octopus or a dolphin, like how do you fathom what they need to do to survive um, and the decisions they need to make on an instantaneous basis are so different from ours and so alien to us that how do you begin to test that intelligence? Yeah. And it's it's difficult um, experimentally as well. I have an interesting example, actually, of how something can seem intelligent, but actually you're, you're testing or you're proving the wrong thing. Have you guys heard of Clever Hands? Um, so basically, he was a horse that he was trained how to count. So they would show him a number or tell him a number, and he would clump the amount of times for that number. So everyone, you know, thought that he he was able to count, but he wasn't able to do it when without the person there. So what they realized he was actually doing was he was studying the humans' changes in behavior when they said when he got to the right number. So they would make like a a micro movement or they would sort of kind of adjust when he got to the right number and then he would stop. So it's really difficult to pull apart things like that. So it seems like he's counting, but actually he's, you know, reading behavior of a human instead. So it's interesting because I suppose different ways different animals evolve, they would put different things would be more important. So being social or reading cues might be more, you know, important than knowing amounts of things. I feel like that story is like one, it's told in a way where it's like a disappointment that like this was just sham. But like the fact that the horse could read the human so closely and carefully is a totally different and equally valid kind of intelligence exactly yeah yeah exactly you're, you're totally right i think most times they say it's like oh but he couldn't actually count but yeah i would say if anything as a human i struggle to say what the other person wants me to say so <laughs> yeah <laughs> i've been outsmarted by a horse <laughs> then you get cases of of actually confirmed animal intelligence like the orangutan who escaped repeatedly from more and more secure zoo enclosures and they could not figure out how it was doing it until they set up cameras and saw that it had hidden a piece of wire in its gums and used it to pick the locks oh wow that's some great escape stuff yeah yeah what's interesting as well with that comparing brains with like social things is one of my favorite is even you can look at historic brains when you look at fossils is you can map 
brain structure and see which parts were larger or smaller. And I know for one, uh, killer whales have a much larger area of their brain dedicated to um, social and family ties. So it appears they might have more social intelligence than we do, even though we think of ourselves as social animals. But I know that historically what they were able to do is look at T-Rex brain casings and they were able to see they actually had really good uh, uh, eyesight by comparing them to bird brains, which is the modern equivalent. They're, they're avian dinosaurs, birds. So they, they probably had really, really good sight. So that thing you hear in Jurassic Park that they can't see you if you stand still, total nonsense. They would have been able to see you and they just eat you. <laughs> That does bring us to an end of our topic on brains. We'll be back next week, though, with the amazing topic of vision. So we'll see what we can talk about next week. Oh, oh what fun. What fun. Uh, but no, that was really cool. Um, I really enjoyed that that chat. Um, but I'm afraid it is time to say goodbye. And it's a, it's a goodbye from Nick. Goodbye. It's a goodbye from Naomi. Goodbye. And it's a goodbye from me. Bye-bye. Yeah, I think it's something like... <laughs> Um, I feel like if anyone with the parrot in the room, if it suddenly reacted, I hope it wasn't horrifically rude. <laughs> <laughs>